We're here with Michael Rubenstone. Michael is the producer, writer, director of of really good. I, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I got your documentary um, two days ago, and I've watched it three times oh, on the sly in search of the family stone. Um, so I've always in my life, I thought I was the biggest sly stone fan. I always have been. I always have thought, you know, and. You're, I think you're much younger than I am. I'm in my 50s, so I'll just take the crown for like the biggest Sly Stone fan in his 50s. You could have it for what your 30s or you know, you can own that crown, man. Yeah, but but you you paid the you paid the cost to be the boss of the Sly Stone fans because you devoted years of your life searching for this guy. Mm-hmm. And it when I read about your movie, when I read about the documentary that you did on Sly in search of the Family Stone. I called my producer and I said, I've got to meet this guy because he did what I wanted to do. I wanted to find Sly Stone. And I thought, I thought he's going to meet me and he's going to go, Oh, you're my biggest fan. Let me tell you about my life and let me tell you about my story. Come in, come into my world. And thank you, Michael, for saving me a whole lot of money. Dude, and time. I, I <laughs> And um, I'm happy to uh, <laughs> do that for you because, um, yeah, you know, um, I, I feel you, man. And that's that was the spirit of the film is just like, oh, what happens if we pick up a camera and go look for our lost hero? Um, what happens? Um, I, I would say Sly Stone is probably one of the most difficult, you know, heroes to go search for. I mean, you go and look for... Uh, Bruce Springsteen, it would be a different movie. Um, right. He's, he's, he's a very challenging dude. But but that, that was that's the spirit of the film. It's just like, I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a true fan. I'm a fan of music. I'm a huge fan of funk. And Sly's music um, hit me in a way um, that music, is, you know, it's one of those moments in your life where you're just like, wow, everything sort of opens up. And... Um, and it happened at a certain time in my life when he really helped me, you know, his, his music, his lyrics, um, you know, sometimes music just hits you at that right time with the right music. And, and Sly was that for me. Um, and um, yeah, I just figured, you know, I was in LA, I was struggling to make my way here um, as an actor and filmmaker. And, um, and I was just like, you know what, what if I, you know, go look for this guy. I, I think he lives right up the street. I, it'll be easy. You know, I right. knock on his door and uh, right. who knows? Yeah. Maybe he'll answer, you know, in his underwear eating cereal, you know, and we'll, and we'll jam. I, I had no idea. Um, I knew that it would be a challenge. I knew it would be interesting, um, but I just had no idea what I was in for. Man, I got, I got to tell you this, this, that voyage of yours, that's a dark, dark dude. He is a dark guy, man. Um, every everything about your movie, anyone who had any interaction with him, his family, um, his ex bandmates, uh, the executives, all of them say the same thing, man. And it's always dark with that guy. It's like, hey, guy, you don't know what you're asking for. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh yeah, you should try to meet him. He's gonna be a little difficult, but you know, if you get there, he's good. He's a good. You know, you have a good dinner. Take him out for, you know, buy him a drink. No, uh-uh. Everyone was like, dude, don't. You don't know what you're asking for. I felt like I was watching, I know it is a movie, but I felt like I was watching a movie, right? About like a fictional character, like a Kaiser Sose or something. He is. He's, <laughs> uh, he's just, you know, it's 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 a very Moby Dick story, you know? <laughs> like you're searching for the white whale and you're searching for Sly Stone. And, uh, you know, my film definitely does exactly what you're describing like you know when you're talking about my movie yeah you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot about the history of the band but i think what really shines through with with my film is that you experience what it's like to be in sly's world and under sly's cloud i I mean i've had i've had people including band members who have seen the film come up to me and be like 
that that last uh, that third act, I've been there, buddy. <laughs> I, I, I feel your pain. I know you know you're just in this place where like you're called to a place and you sit and you wait and then you go at a moment's notice and then oh he changes his mind and you sit and you wait and you deal with a lot of hiccups and characters and just it's it's insane it's uh, insane but i really felt that and by proc by proxy i almost kind of felt like what it is to sort of be him you know we had that connection in a weird way and i sort of needed to go through that to realize uh you know what kind of man he is and 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 what being in his world is like. I mean, some, you know, we were just listening to music. Like, it, it gets me higher than pretty much any other music uh, that I know. Yeah. Like, it's got the highs and the lows, and that's that's part of his genius. So, so again, talking to Michael Rubenstone, the director, writer, producer, the father of just an amazing documentary. And I'm not saying this to blow smoke, man. I really mean it. I got it two days ago, and I've watched it three times. Um, on uh, on the sly in search of the family stone. It's very, uh, it's rewatchable. You know, you pick it, up. It re- really is. And, 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 you know, it's always a ride. So, um, so let's, I mean, we're talking about sly stone here. And for those who aren't as familiar as funk heads, like myself and Michael, um, you know, sly stone came up in the, you know, he had been in the business. He was born in Texas. His family moved to Vallejo, um, home of E40. And then uh, he uh, got into that. He was a musical genius, right? He was a prodigy. I think he was playing. He was playing keyboards by seven. Um, he then played the drums, bass, guitar by eleven, right? So he was. He was actually a musical prodigy, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, they were a church family, and you know, as part of the deal was, you know, you grabbed an instrument and you just started playing with it, and you started singing, and you grabbed a tambourine and you started banging on it, like that was. That was in the you know their their world and um, and and then it continued and uh, Sly, I think he recorded his first uh, album. It was a gospel album with his brothers and sisters, the Stewart Four, um, when he was maybe seven or eight years old, something like that. Um, yeah, no, he did. That's right. Yeah, he sang. And uh, yeah, so he was just steeped in music, and um, and it just grew from there. Yeah, he joined a he joined a group with some buddies, and it, it was a multiracial group. Which people now are probably thinking, "Why are you saying that?" But look, in that day, it was a big deal. You didn't have multiracial groups. In fact, you didn't have multiracial genres. Right? The genres themselves were, were 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 you know they were divided by race. It's just what it was. And don't take for granted what we have today because it wasn't like that then. And so Sly Stone created a group called the Viscanes, and they played for a bit. You know, played around and. And then he started doing his own band. And then he also became a DJ at KSOL. And as a guy who grew up in, in the Bay Area, I'm very familiar with KSOL because when I was younger, they were the funk and the soul and the disco station, right? When it transferred, when it transformed into disco. But KSOL, man, I mean, that was a big deal. And he was, he was a DJ and he was a popular one. He was a popular one. And he, I think at that point, he began to say, hey, I can do this shit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that was really influential time you know he was not only uh, the dj at ksol which was an eclectic uh, you know music station you know he was playing um everything r&b soul funk uh, i mean whatever funk there was james brown uh you know he was playing the rolling stones uh the, the the psychedelic 60 you know sort of invasion so he was getting all this sort of data um sort of in his cranium, you know, during this time. And he had just also studied uh, music theory at a, at a, at a community college um, with uh, Professor David Froelich, who introduced him to, you know, the basics of music theory and counterpoint. And, um, and then he's also at the same time, you know, joined up and um, was a producer at Autumn Records, which was a really small label um, working with, you know, uh, the, the Warlocks, uh, you know, Bo Brummels. Before they became the Grateful Dead, he worked with the Bo Brummels. He worked with, uh, you know, he had some singles out there. Mm-hmm. Um, Freeman, Come On and Swim. Uh, That's and, right. You know, doing demos with Billy Preston, you know, young Billy Preston. So he was just, he was ready. He was ready to do his thing. And yeah. uh, 
I, I, I believe it was Jerry Martini who became the sax, saxophone player who, um, you know, just sort of said to him one day, just ran into him. It's like, you know, we should start a band. Yeah. I think that would be a good idea. And I think you should be the leader. So I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but he created a band and his brother, Freddie had also created a band. And one day in the kitchen, they decided, Hey, why don't we put our bands together? Yeah. And that's when it came up. Um, yeah. Uh, so Freddie had a band called Freddie and the Stone Songs and Sly had a band called Sly and the Stoners. <laughs> my band had uh, Cynthia Robinson and John Turk and, um, and then Freddie's band had drummer Greg Rico. And I think the, the word around the Stewart sort of household was that Freddie's band was just like a lot better. <laughs> and Sly, Sly was DJing, you know, he was doing, he was very busy, so he didn't have as much time to rehearse. And then one day, I think, I think Sly sort of like was like, all right, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I should team up. And uh, one day, um, uh, I think Gregorico came to the house and, and he was like, where's the Stone Souls? And he's like, oh, we're starting a new band tonight. So <laughs> Mary was there and, um, and uh, Cynthia, um, who was so like pulled from his band and, uh, and they went and got Larry Graham, who was playing with his mother, in like a duo <laughs> around the Bay Area. You know, I, I've always found that that was really interesting. It's like, oh, yeah, when we brought in this bassist named Larry, it's like, dude, he ended up becoming the inventor of slap bass. He's like one of the greatest bassists of all time, um, you know, in, the, in these genres, definitely pioneering. And it's like, oh, yeah, we just found him, uh, you know, at a church with his mom. Jesus. Yeah. No, I think what happened was um, he he was playing guitar in that band and they had a drummer and the drummer quit. So he started to, um, he just started to hit the guitar and just sort of hit it in such a way to make up for the lack of percussion. Um, Yeah. So he just kind of started to find a way to play the bass notes while he was, you know, also playing guitar because they lost their drummer <laughs> and that, that started it. And he just further grew that sort of uh, concept and technique in Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah. That's amazing. Just, Oh yeah. Get this guy named Larry. <laughs> it turns out to be the greatest, one of the greatest, you know, uh, funk bassists ever. Yeah. God, God, God bless you, Bootsy. I mean, that's a debate for another day. Yeah, no, I mean, you had a monster band. You had Larry Graham who was innovating the bass. You had... Uh, Graham Central Station. Yeah, he went on to do Graham Central Station. Yeah. I mean, you had, um, you know, Greg Rico, who's probably the one of the most sampled drummers of all time, just in terms of, you know, rap sampling, you know, his, his drum beats. Um, you had Freddie Stone, who's just one of my favorite guitarists. Like, I just love Freddie's. I mean, he's just so smooth and... And, and an incredible talent, an incredible voice. Yeah. Also, I mean, I, I, I've also been told that Freddie was really heavily involved in sort of the musical direction of the band. Um, oh, okay. When Sly, when Sly wasn't available or whatever, Freddie just was, he was the guy um, that everybody leaned on. Um, and, you know, of course, Sly wrote the music and, you know, his arrangements for horns is just. Oh, uh, yeah. When you have a, you know, you have a female, you know, trumpet player. Um, you know, Cynthia, just on the throne, just, uh, okay. Can I, can I tell you like who didn't have a crush on Cynthia Hmm. and you got to meet her and even, I don't know what age she was in your movie, Mm -hmm. but she was still a bad bitch. She was cool as she was so cool. I like the coolest. Yeah. And also just a sweet, sweet lady. Just really, really genuinely just considerate, sweet, you know, just, I don't know. She'd like, you know, she'd cook you dinner if you needed some food. Yeah. <laughs> she was awesome. Yeah. I remember watching her when he was in concert, right? And just the way, like, when they did Dance to the Music and she would do that little scream, right? And it was just amazing, man. But the horns were awesome amazing and jerry martini incredible you know they were just a power power duo and then rose was just like you know who joined the band a little bit later i mean her vocals are just like uh, i mean and then everybody is a star just like uh and family affair like 
she's a, she's a, she is a really unique talent. And, um, you know, they just had, they were rock stars. They were just such. Well, well, let's talk about that because they really were. And, and they really, what he did. And by the way, their, their rise was so fast. So they put the band together, I think 66, 67, they started, right. They, that's when they started putting the band together with Freddie and, and with Sly. Um, and they were already doing albums, right? They were discovered by actually one of the highlights of your movie um, is David Kaeperlich. That guy, he was the A&R guy for Epic and who also was their agent, which I don't know what, I guess they have no conflict laws in, in, in yeah, the A&R no, it was world. very rare for someone that works at a record company to also manage a band. Yeah. Is that possible? Yeah. But David Kaepernick was the guy that was like, oh, these guys are geniuses. And he saw what Sly was doing, what Sly did. And again, if you're looking at this from the from a chair in 2022, you don't get it. You're like big F, you know, big deal. Yeah. He had like white dudes and black dudes in the same band and women and men. So what? You know, um, it was a huge deal then. People don't understand it. Back then, if you had a band, the women were in the back doing doo-wop, right? They were like. You know, they were saying, Ooh, right? That was their deal. And you either had a black group or you had a white group. That's just what it was. Sly. And it's so perfect because it was that time. It was the time, the the seasons of love, right? The hippies were coming together for, you know what I mean? It, it fit the moment. And he was there. He rode that zeitgeist. Um, his genius rode that zeitgeist for those brief, let's call them four years, five years that he was at the top. I, you know, and I think that, yes, that, that, that is a remarkable thing. But what's even more remarkable to me is the fact that I don't think he really thought about it as something that, like, he wanted to do as a political statement, you know, or a representation of that moment, that zeitgeisty moment in the late 60s. I don't think he was even thinking like that. He was like, I just want to play with musicians and if they're white, if they're black, if they're a girl, it just, it didn't matter. You know, I, I, I maybe in the back of his head he did, but I think he just, you know, these are my people. And it was a small community, like, you know, so it made their rise like pretty astounding and was probably overwhelming. Well, it became overwhelming. You know? Yeah. 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 So fast. And such sure. So they, they're, you know, they were in the kitchen in 67 and they decide to, to, to throw their, their stew together. Right. Just playing local. Um, you know, uh, he played at a uh, Winchester cathedral, um, which was owned by Rich Romanello, who was their first manager before uh, Kaepernick and, uh, you know, played, played at the, you know, just the, the after hour spots, they became known as sort of a cult phenomenon because, Whenever the the band sort of ended, all the other bands finished their gigs, and they'd come to this late night spot and watch Sly. And they'd start at like midnight and play till four in the morning. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I remember that. I, I've read about that. Really um, small endeavor that just you know, and then Kaepernick came in and he uh, caught some shows. Right? He, he caught some of those late shows. He came in and saw them once, and uh, you know, the story says that he. And Sly went to an IHOP after the show and, uh, right. and said, uh, let's do this. You know, I'm mad with you. Uh, I, think, uh, I think your band's going to be a monster. And then they were already putting out, right? They put out the album in, I think, in 68. And in 68, they had danced to the music. And then, boom, that's when the that's when the roller coaster started going up. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it wasn't it seems like faster than there was. There was a year where they were playing in Vegas and played some kind of underground sort of uh, gigs in New York City. Um, there was like Warhol sort of, you know, sort of underground clubs and stuff. And and their first album was a bust. It was, yeah. Something new or what was that? Something brand new or? A whole or? new thing. A whole new thing. That's right. A whole new thing. And, you know, uh, a lot of people in the industry, a lot of musicians, uh, you know, uh, were, were really impressed by, a lot of the arrangements and stuff, but uh, in the end, there wasn't a hit record. And uh, Kaplik said, "You know, you need a hit single, man. You gotta, you you, you gotta figure out something to to get some traction on the radio." And he's like, "I'm gonna go back to San Francisco and I'm gonna write you a hit single." And it was dance to the music. Dance to the music. 
yeah, right, right. And I heard Clive right. Davis is on your. How right. was that, by the way? How'd you get Clive Davis? How did how did that go? How hard was that? Everything about this movie was hard. You know, it, it took me twelve years to make. It was a true labor of love. It was on a shoestring. Like you know, I am not backed by any studio. I'm an indie guy. I'm a punk rock filmmaker. And I just said, you know, I just put my mind to it. And I was just like, I'm just going to do this. And if I had thought twice about, you know, what I was going to go through or the costs involved and, you know, personally and financially, I would have never made this film. Um, but because I didn't know shit and I just believed and I just went for it, um, I made a film and uh, and it's it's unreal. <laughs> it's it's yeah. a crazy movie, you know, but it was that sort of raw determination. Like, I just have to tell this story. This story yeah. not to be told. This music is too good. So, so back to 68. So we, yeah, yeah, right. His first one was a bust. Then he put out Life. Uh, he put out the Dance to the Music album. I think Life was okay, right? The Life album was all right. I love the Life album. I think it's great. But yes, it did not hit like. Uh, yeah, it didn't have the hits. Right, right. But, yeah. you know, they, they, were, they were definitely on the rise. Um, and then they put out Stand. And that was that was all she wrote, man. When they put out Stand. There's not a bad track. Not on one. Not I'm, one. I'd say like eight of the ten tracks or whatever were like you know on the charts. I mean, it's it's incredible. I am everyday people. Yeah, not not one everyday people stand. You know, actually, the best, I, I think one of the best cuts on that, I, we can't really say the name of it anymore, but God, that was an amazing song. Don't call me. Don't right? call me writing. Yeah, that was just an amazing song. Now, those of you who are interested in hearing a, a good piece of music from from the height of, of, of the spirit, right, of the times, that's the song you got to listen to and remember when it was written and what was happening in this country. Unbelievable. You know, yeah. <laughs> And then, and then in '69, right? He he goes to the biggest, <laughs> the biggest concert, right? Yeah. With the biggest stars and the biggest audience. I mean, what were there like two hundred and fifty thousand people at Woodstock? Uh, half, um, half, huh? half, half a million. million? Half a million people at Woodstock. The biggest stars at that moment were at Woodstock. I think all of them except Led Zeppelin, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I. I Sure, the Beatles had just broken up. I mean, the Rolling Stones weren't there. Look, it, it was an incredible collection of artists, and uh, and you know, he stole the show. He really, dude. He 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 really did. I mean, he just put on a show that. Oh my God, I wish I was there for that. <laughs> So I've always told some. I've always told people like you know, hey, if you could be somebody for a moment, right, and you could relive that moment, go back in history, and just be them for that moment, like who would you be, right? And um, I would be Sly Stone singing "Let Me Take You Higher" in front of five hundred thousand people and owning every one of those f for the you know however many minutes it took him to sing that song. him and I would gladly die right <laughs> after that performance ended because I know that I would have been at the highest a human can be now that I've watched your movie I understand maybe I don't want to do that <laughs> well you will never get that high again I mean it's, <laughs> it was the apex you know it was I, I, you know what Michael in my notes right next to it I have apex it was it was the apex it really was I mean that performance really made me a, a devotee. Like I, I have never, ever yes. seen a live performance like that in my life. And oh my God, you could just feel it. And I was watching the documentary, you know, like, and I could just feel it. It elevated. Yeah. He really took everybody higher. And um, it, it, I, I, it was like three in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it was like three in the morning. 
right? And he had a call and response going with half a million people, and he owned them. They weren't doing it because they felt bad for the dude on stage. They felt it because he was commanding them to call and respond, man. And and everything about it, the lighting, right? The purplish lighting, the fringe, the bodysuit, the glasses, like I wanted to be him in that moment. Again, gladly die right after that performance because I feel that I would have reached the heights that a human could reach. Um, right. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting. Um, you know, um, the, uh, summer of soul, uh, quest love John that just came out. Um, same, yeah. Same, same, same oh, summer. Yeah. It was, it was right before Woodstock. So a lot of the sort of stuff that he was working through that, you know, eventually, um, you know, was at Woodstock. He was sort of like prepping for that, for that festival. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty so, amazing. Yeah, and so in like, shopping in the village, and that's how they got all those co- crazy costumes for Woodstock. Like, it just yeah. How did they get those costumes, man? Yeah, they were just shopping in New York in the East Village, and they're just having fun <laughs> in a band, and, and yeah, they picked up that fringe thing, and you know, did they get Larry Graham's like Robin Hood hat? Oh, dude, man, some of those, some of those outfits, unreal. Just <laughs> you know, they looked like you know people that came down from space, you know. The, 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 yeah, the suit he wore with the fringe and the bodysuit, it was just, God, it was perfect, man. And so every time I watch it, Michael, honestly, I, I tell you this, and my wife can, she will back it up. I tear up. I tear up when I watch that performance. I don't tear up because it's sad, right? I tear up because I'm like, that is what music's about. Right there. That's what it's about. Why? I tear up because I'm like, God, if we could have that again, if we could have that type of entertainment one more time, if we can have an audience like that, right? One more time. God, and I I just feel like that moment is, you know, we're never going to recapture that moment, but it, it, just to see a master at his apex just makes me like so emotional. Like, watch that. You know, like I, I got to say, like what you just said, just, oh God, if we could all feel this, you know, I honestly, when I started making this film, you know, this was, it was right after 9-11, I started to make this, this doc. And like, I, I was craving that, that feeling. I was craving that connectedness. And I really did believe that this music could make the world a better place. I know it sounds corny, but when you feel that, and when you see that performance, you understand like he was connecting everybody in that space. And that's what makes him a genius and that's what makes music so powerful. And it, you know, it was in late 69 with a community, like it was, it was not just about the band or the music. It was everything. Um, and I, I was needing that in my life. Um, and, uh, and Sly was a sort of conduit for me. At that time. So, so in making this movie, okay. So I think we can all agree that that was the absolute apex of, of Sly Stone and right. It came very quickly after the beginning of, of the group. Um, in 1969, he stole Woodstock. He was doing the summer, summer um, concerts in Harlem, and he put out the greatest album of his career in 1969. Right, and then he goes, he goes quiet. <laughs> well, he did a greatest hits album right around that yeah. time too, which was one of his biggest sellers. Um, had two number one, it had two big hits on it, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it had his greatest hits, and then it had Everybody's a Star, and I think one other new single. But um, hot, hot fun. And, and hot actually, fun. thank you for letting me be myself was on that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, he was given his fan base a little something. And then, you know, I think shortly after that, the, the Woodstock film came out and that really just pushed everything over the top because, you know, maybe people had heard about his performance, but when they saw it, you know, it was, it was, you know, everybody was running out and buying albums and getting, getting on the train. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't make anything for a while. Yeah, you know, he gets a lot of flack for that. But like, you know, even David Kaplick was, he said, uh, I think two years is a short time to wait for another Sly Stone album. I think he had that written and put up in his office or something. (laughs) That was was his uh, publicity sort of, you know, um, headline. But um, you know, two years, honestly, though, these days, that's not that big a deal. You know, I yeah. think 
really, you know, cranking them out in that, during that period. Yeah. During that period, though, that was a long time because yeah. they used to crank them out, man. Correct. That's true. Yeah. So then he comes out with maybe people think is one of the seminal albums, right? Of the, of the 20th century where there's a riot going on. And there's a great story behind that, you know, how we put that together. And what, what's your take on how, how he approached it and the darkness that we hear about? And is that true? Was he, was he during, was he in a very, very dark period then? Or Oh yeah. I, I know he was growing apart from the rest of his band. It really was just the Sly Stone show at that point. Yeah, I think that was the beginning of it. The band was still together at the time, but definitely starting to fracture. Um, but uh, that was when Sly moved to L.A. Um, you know, he moved from San Francisco, which was his base. You know, his parents were there. He was very close with his parents. You know, the whole band was was up there. So he sort of moved a lot of people down. Um, but I think some people did not join or they just, you know, would come down periodically to do um, you know, sessions, but, uh, when that starts to happen, you know, and everything else that comes with Los Angeles and fame and, you know, hanging in Bel Air, <laughs> you know, with celebrities, um, like Bobby Womack and uh, Ike Turner and, you know, like, uh, Red Fox and it's just like it, it, Richard Pryor, it's going to get a little, you know, uh, things are going to get a little, <laughs> funky <laughs> not in the funky way like it's it's going to get a little distracting and music is not going to be your primary focus you know sly he loved music you know but he was he was having a good time you know i think there's a riot going on it's just a reflection of the time um and it's a reflection of sly um sly was also like you know there's a lot of political sort of upheaval and there's a lot of you know militant um, groups that were sort of saying, you know, you should get rid of that white manager, or you should get rid of that white drummer, and just like, you know, it was a lot of, um, you know, he was pushed and pulled in a lot of different directions, and you know, he was a sensitive cat and also really famous, and you know, probably didn't know which way to go, and he just went inward, and it all came out, and uh, there's there's a riot going on, and. Um, it's very much a Sly album. You know, he was just there. And like I said before, he was, you know, he, he used that, uh, that rhythm King, which was the first drum machine to be used in a track. Um, you know, up till then it was, you know, use your drummer, but he laid down that track because the drummer wasn't there or it was four in the morning and he had a great idea. So he just pushed a button, started recording and just played a bass line and started to build some things from there. And, Oh, it, it, Bobby, Bobby, you know, Bobby Womack's hanging out. He's like, Bobby, come play a lick, you know, or, or you know, give me a little background vocals or whatever. And, oh, I turn her, you know, you're a good bass player. Like lay down this bass and, you know, he, and then every once in a while he'd bring in the band and, you know, to sort of flush things out. But he was recording, you know, in this you know, secret studio and, you know, behind a wall. He was also running around in a mobile home where he always, he made like the engineers that were on call just move all the recording equipment into the mobile home and to record as they were like driving around. I mean, it was insane. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he also, um, you know, he was indulging in a lot of stuff. And from what I'm told, there's, there's a lot of times when he was just writing and on a jag and up for days working on a track and then he'd just erase it. <laughs> he just, you know, by the end, he's like, you know, no, I, I, I want to do something else. And that, you know, so everything just got prolonged and that album took a long time. Um, but yeah. it was really incredible. Like, I think he would uh, like, I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say it's the first album you should listen to if you're, yeah, <laughs> no, it won't give you a flavor. Um, but it's, it's, if you are a fan, you, you recognize. So, so do you think a lot of that now that you've been involved in the whole Sly Stone chase and, you know, you've, but you've met a lot of the folks that knew him intimately. Do, do you think a lot of that behavior was, was his personality, an inherent personality that just became more apparent as he aged and, you know, was left to his own devices because of the money? Or do you think that it was brought up by the drugs and people and bad influences? You know, you, you'd really have to ask Sly. I, I, I can only speculate. Um, 
to answer your question, I think it's a variety of things. I think that, um, you know, he, uh, he, he was partying a lot. Um, he was dealing with fame on a level that most people never deal with. He was in, you know, in a politically charged, um, time in our country's history that, um, was intimidating and frightening and scary and confusing and, you know, and, and he also represented something and he sort of maybe, maybe, you know, looked at as a leader, as a real leader. And I think he was able to lead through his music, but I think as an individual, I don't think he, he ever was interested in that. I, I, I don't, I don't think that he wanted that mantle. Um, I think he was a pretty, you know, off camera, a pretty quiet, sensitive cat that, you know, just wants to have some fun and, 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 and write music. Um, so I think it's a huge combination of all those things. And, uh, you know, and yes, you know, chemical and substance abuse thrown into the mix is not going to make it easier. It's just going to make it more scary and, you know create a stressful, paranoid environment where you don't want to deal with that stuff. You'd rather just lay it down and lay low. And I you think know, probably started to lay low. And, you know, yeah. Scott Stone's one of the biggest recluses in rock and roll history. You know, and I think around that time, he probably started, you know, pulling away slowly. Although he was still, a, you know, a famous act for many years after that. But yeah. that was the beginning of the withdrawal. Yeah, I mean, he put out some albums, you know, they, you know, actually one of my favorite songs, uh, If You Want Me to Stay, came out of one of those later albums. But um, it reminds me of Prince's later output. <laughs> he was just dropping dropping stuff indiscriminately, right? Um, the quality kind of went down. But anyway, he put out some albums, dropped by his, lab, by his label, then he kind of disappeared. I mean, he had dis definitely disappeared from the performing and the concert scene, right? He was gone. And, and this is where, you know, your movie comes in because you're like me. Or like, where did this guy go? Because he was like Prince. If you look at Prince, you look at the way Prince presented himself, his stage mannerisms, the way he dressed with the hat, with the jumpsuits, right? With all – that was sly, man. That was sly. And I try to tell people, and they don't get it because they don't know who the hell he is because there's nothing about him. I feel like his historical impact was great, but his footprint is like that of a baby. And yeah. so I think you probably feel the way I feel. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Neil Young said, you know, it's better to burn out than to fade away. He's still fading, you know, um, since, you know, 71, 73. You know, this is a long time. It's almost 50 years <laughs> of a fade. And, the, you know, there were people that like Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, some of these legends that died really young became legends because of their death. But Sly just kind of, he just yes. kind of hung in there and hung around and, you know, would make some appearances and try to make some comebacks. I mean, he tried to make some comebacks. Um, there's a few albums where he's like, there's even one album called Heard You Miss Me While well, I'm Back. Yeah, that's all the instruments. and Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So he, he, you know, he tried, but, um, you know, it wasn't the 60s anymore. The music was changing and Sly, you know, was not uh, catching the ears of the public yeah. like he was. So, so one of your, one of the, one of the, I think one of the best stories in your movie um, on the sly in search of the family stone, we're here with Michael Rubenstone who put that whole thing together um, is the Paul Schaefer bit. Came out one time to play with me and my band on the Letterman show in uh, the early eighties. I think he had, may have seen the show and he was absolutely fantastic. It was like a dream come true. And I was so impressed that I called him at his hotel the next day and said, I just wanted to say what a great thrill it was to play with you and, and how terrific you were. And he said, um, <clears throat> thanks, you think I could borrow $100? Uh, and I said, uh, well, sure. You know, I was, I was sort of taken aback by it. You know, he came over. Gave him a hundred dollars. He says, cool, you know, nice to see you. And when he left, I said, I said to myself, damn, uh, you know, I'll never, 
I, he, he, Sly has conned me out of a hundred dollars. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, that says a lot about where Sly was at the time. Um, I, you know, I think at that time he, you know, in the interview, he, he seems kind of like, I don't know, just a little desperate, you know, like, um, like almost a cry for help. I know he was playing with a band called the One-Eyed Jacks, which was a, a, a group in Chicago. He was playing with them at the time. And he's like, he sort of says in the interview, he's like, we're playing, like, we, 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 we want to work. Like, book us for some gigs. You know, he's kind of like reaching out to the music industry. Like, I, I, I can still play. Like, um, But yeah, borrowing $100 is pretty telling too. Um, <laughs> But at the same time, there is something that I didn't put in the film, and Paul Schaefer has always given me shit for it <laughs> because I didn't put It's like, Michael, you need to put in the tag. Years later, Bobby Womack is playing The Letterman Show, and he comes over to Schaefer, pulls out $100, and says, hey, Sly told me to give you this. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it probably was not Sly's money. He's probably thinking, can you pay? I have no idea. I don't even know if it's true. But Paul, says it, Paul says it happened. I trust Paul. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to go with the myth, even if it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great story, man. That's a good, that tag is good. That tag was not in the movie. I know. I should put it in the credits. <laughs> yeah, like after the credits, right? That's that, like hidden that Easter egg there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The, the group was uh, elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 93, and I think you have some of that in your movie too. That was such a weird, weird deal, the way he came up. And he started looking kind of odd at that time too. Is there a reason he began to look so different? I mean, everybody ages, but look at his brother, Freddie. Freddie looks like he just walked, right? I mean, Freddie looks like he's in the high school band. Um, Bobby Womack still, you know, looked decent, right, in your movie. Cynthia looked great. But he looks really different. Um, it's also—it's almost like a portrait of Dorian Gray, if, if you will yeah. don't mind me <laughs> saying that. No, but but what happened? Um, again, I, you know, I, I I just know from my research. But um, look, he, he 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 was struggling at that time. He was—I um, know that he had some um, run-ins with the law. Mm -hmm. Spent some time in jail. Um, there's larceny. Um, something on his record. Um, and uh, I think he was not paying alimony. Um, so he was clearly in financial dire straits. Um, I think around that time, he also sold his publishing to Michael Jackson. Um, who, you know, oh, man. A, a song, you know, pennies on the dollar. Because he was so desperate. Um, I didn't know that. I never knew that. Yeah, that was. I think that was actually um, Michael Jackson's first like acquisition in terms of buying artists' catalogs. Oh um, man, huge fan of Sly's. Um, and uh, yeah, I think he was just. He was, he was. It was desperate times. This was not fun. Not fun. Um, just hanging on by the skin of his. By the skin he's. And. Uh, so, yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I believe he got in an accident, like he was injured at some point. So he also had some, you know, physical sort of yeah. health issues that he was dealing with. I mean, it was, it was not, I can't imagine it was a fun time to be at home. And um, he just, but the thing is, man, during that time, he still had it. Like, I've heard just like random stuff, random recordings and just, you know. So little appearances he's made and he could still sing like he could still do it he just couldn't do it do it you know uh, mm -hmm. being in the music industry and being a performer takes a lot of a lot of work and a lot of determination i just he just probably just didn't have it at that time well i don't want to give too much of your movie away right i want to leave some there for for people to you know people to watch yeah, whatever. Yeah. My film is still not uh, available, so mm -hmm. it's, it's. I'm sure it will be in due time, but uh, it should be. Honestly, it, it's awesome. It is. I've watched it. I don't. I don't repeat watch stuff. I don't. I like my wife always likes watching fucking Pineapple Express, right? And Bridesmaids. And I'm like, dude, how many times can you watch that? Right. <laughs> it, it, 
But I watched your thing three times in two days because it is that good of a movie. And it has an arc, right? It has a dramatic, a narrative arc. Oh, yeah. it, it, it's great. It's um, you need to get that out there, Michael. I know. Um, and I know. I'm, I'm not saying that as a fan because I have watched other documentaries like Unsung or something and, you know, uh, whatever. Kind of a doc, you know, like it's just it's a different kind of doc. Like it's a yeah. real immersive, you know, sort of punk rock, like <laughs> verite experience. And yeah. uh, you're just you're just <laughs> on it with me. It's a ride. Well, you met some really interesting people. <laughs> yeah. so, the one that got me are the guys that you met in the parking lot. To, uh, because I've met these kind of people before. Because I put on huge parties and I hire rappers and hip hop guys, and I know these people. Like when I when you were talking to the guy in the parking lot, who's like, yeah, 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 uh, just five thousand, and he can't do it today, but we can do it tomorrow. And you got to meet him here. And oh, he overslept, and you know that kind of stuff. Believe me, I've heard all those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, how how did you feel like delving into that world? And, and the other thing, honestly, I wanted to say is it was very very sad. To see that in like 1972, 73, Sly Stone was hanging out with Muhammad Ali and Richard Pryor and Billy Preston. And now he's hanging out with the shadiest of shady dudes in parking lots trying to scam money off of a documentary film producer. So, I mean, how, how was that? <laughs> it was scary, man. Yeah. You know, like it was, it, it, what this film does is it, it really does put you in Sly's world. You know, if you want to experience what it's like to be in Sly's you know, circle, you know, the cloud that he dwells under. You want that experience. Like my film definitely does that. And I was right there and it was weird. It was scary. It was exciting. It was wild. It was, you know, it was, it was truth. It was desperation. It was, it was, I was just like connected with Sly in this way he was communicating to me about where he was at without even saying a word. Um, and that's, that's the genius. You know, he, you know, everybody asked me like, cause I, I don't meet and interview Sly in this film. And you know what? I'm glad that I didn't um, because I got it. I got it in spades, you know, what he's about and what his genius is and what his flaws are and what his beauty is and what his, you know, just disgusting you know, just disgusting, just dirty side. I mean, he is sly, you know, he's a, he's a hustler. He is a hustler. And, you know, like I don't deal with that very often in my, (laughs) you know, I, if, if it's a good day Um, for me, it, it was, it was kind of a thrill, you know, as sad and as depressing as it was sometimes, you know, I, I almost recognized like, gosh, sort of feel bad for the guy you know i'm kind of i'm lucky to be making this movie and like you know healthy and happy and i have a girlfriend at home or whatever you know like it it sort of brought everything down to like real real and so i think i think we touched on this at the beginning when i was saying that you know i had never met as big a sly stone fan as myself um and I thanked you for going through all the pain <laughs> of actually chasing him and trying to meet him because that's, that was an endeavor that I w- actually wanted to do myself. Um, but honestly, I think you learned everything you needed to learn about him just by the chase. It told you everything. And if you watch the movie, which hopefully everybody will get an opportunity because it is amazing. And I'm not saying this because I'm a fan of Sly Stone. It just is a great documentary. It has this great narrative arc. Like you don't have to be a bodybuilder to love pumping iron, right? It's just the narrative arc and the characters. And that's what your movie is, is awesome about. That's what's so awesome about your movie, rather. Um, but the, the at the end, right? At the end, when there's, you know, there's a conclusion, let's call it that. And there's a conclusion to the movie at the end. Was he what you thought he was when you looked at him? Totally. <laughs> I mean, he, he, are you talking about the convention? And uh, yeah, yeah, Oakland? at the, at the yeah. very end. Like, look, he 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 got paid well, you know. To, to he got flown out. He got paid well. He got a limousine. Um, he had to show up for ten minutes, and then he left. I mean, like, he didn't even talk. He just like waited. No, no, 
he, he does. He did. He does. show you the whole. But the, look, that was a great day, and I, I'm really, really happy that I was there that day because he looks good. Like he looks good. He looked happy. The band was all there. As many that was one of the you know biggest collection of the band sort of getting together. Was Larry there? Larry was not there. Okay, but um, you know, I think it could have been one of the last times. You know. He spent some time with Cynthia um, before she passed. Um, Greg was there. Jerry was there. Freddie was there. You know, um, fans like me. Um, you know, uh, there's these twins in, in, in Holland that put this together with uh, um, uh, a couple other guys from Jersey. Uh, and uh, they, 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 they're they biggest fans of me. Uh, bigger, even. And, uh, and it was a real celebration of music. Um, Sly answered some questions um, and, you know, it was just further sort of, sort of like, I don't, I didn't need an interview. Like there's nothing that Sly Stone is going to tell me that is going to be like, Oh, that's the answer. You know, <laughs> it's right. like, no, no, you know, it's, it's all there. It's all in the music. It, it was all in my dealings with him and my experience and, and, and the people that I met, like, man, I'm so grateful. For, well, Kaepernick was amazing. Oh man, that guy kind of changed my life. You know, <laughs> after I went to Hawaii, and I was like, I want to die here. Like, <laughs> I have a idea. I want to die in Maui. That's a good call. Good call on you, David. I love yeah. it. Um, but yeah, no, him. I, you know, I talked to Dick Cavett, you know, just one of the biggest legends of television. Yeah, Cornell West like gave me a history lecture that I will never forget and was better than anything I ever experienced in college. And as far as just like, just, you know, the history of civil rights during that period, um, and I represented during that time, um, you know, Freddie Stone. I mean, I still talk to some of the band members. Uh, they, they, the- they did take me in, you know, I know Sly had his, probably had his issues with me, but they completely embraced me. And, you know, I, I can, so- you know, I really think fondly of all of them. They're all really good people. Can, can I ask you a question about uh, – it's a particular scene in the movie, and I, I hate to do this when, when people might not have seen it, but it's something that I've always wondered since I watched your movie. In the very beginning of the movie, you 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 go to a home where, you, where I think you believe he is, right? And um, it has a big S on the gate, and a Mexican kid comes to the to there and goes, no, no, you know, yeah, um, he doesn't live here. You're like, well, what's the S on the gate for? Like, oh, that's just, you know, like a family name or something like that. And then you do an event, right, for the Funk Family Affair, and, and he shows up, right, because those are, you know, Cynthia and all those folks and Rose. And um, in the balcony was Sly, who, by the way, kept his motorcycle helmet on the entire time, which I thought was a little interesting. He, uh, <laughs> that's Sly, right? That Mexican kid was with him. Was that his house? Absolutely. Okay. All right. I I could have met him my first day of filming. That's (laughs) that's the ironic thing about this whole thing. You know, if I had just, you know, asked the right question or the right way, or when that door opened, just walked down and pushed the doorbell, like, yeah, I would have not, you know, the film could have been over in a day. (laughs) (laughs) Hung with him that day. Uh, But no, that guy gave me the the brush off. And I was so naive, like, I could have asked, like, oh, what's your last name? And just seeing what his response was. Oh, my God. I screamed that at the screen. I was like, ask him his last name. Could have. But I was, I was a green filmmaker on my first day. <laughs> that is so amazing. I just didn't have the wherewithal. Like, I was, I was just, I just took him at, at his word. Uh, but, um, yeah. You actually found him on your first day. So, so to, before we leave, and I want to thank you so much for for doing this, man, because this is an amazing documentary. Again, I hope it gets out there soon because it is a great, it is just a great story. Um, by the way, it, what, what I find interesting, you look so different in so many different parts of the movie. Like one time, you look like you're doing guys and dolls, right? And then like, I'm like another time, you look like Fredo. I'm like, what is this dude doing? Why does he always look so different, man? Well, so. I was I was actually like I remember the first big shoot we had in the Bay Area meeting the band. I was I was actually shooting a film uh, as an actor um, uh-huh. where I was playing a porn star and I had this ridiculous yeah, porn, the mustache cat, caterpillar mustache. Yes, film. 
<laughs> so when I met, you know, the Family Stone for the first time, I looked like, you know, I just looked like a sleazy 70s porn star. You like, did. <laughs> it was well, I, I went with the guys and dolls. Um, so, <laughs> so, so afterwards, you know, we've learned more about him and we hear that he's living in a van on a beach right down in Crenshaw. Is this true? Is he still living out in a van kind of and just getting by by people yeah. bringing him food? I'm, I'm, I'm told right now, like I, I know his manager pretty well and, who takes care of him. I think he's doing, he's doing good. Like I, I honestly have heard good things lately. Uh, I don't okay. keep up with it as much as I used to, but yeah, there was a, there was a period and definitely when I, I finished filming, like he was in a mobile home um, and uh, you know, just at a friend's house and mm-hmm. getting power from, you know, his friend's house. And um, you know, I think he, you know, he lived in some hotels, um, you know, he's sly. He does like to stay mobile. You know, he's always saying like, "I, dude, I don't know what I'm going to need to to piece out of here. Like, I want to be mobile. <laughs> yeah, who knows coming after him? Well, so, but I have hold, uh, heard of late that he's done really well. So, okay, well, that's good to hear because he is he I is still he, an idol of mine. I really, I really, you know, and look, I, I, I I'm, I'm thrilled that he's still with us. Like, I, I can't believe it, and I'm just so, you know, it's important to celebrate these you know, these legends while they're still with us. I was talking to somebody about the story, right? And I told them, you know, about, you know, him living on the beach and, or wherever he was living in a van. And um, I'm like, you know, we don't know that if Janis Joplin or Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix would have not died and they would have like, right? Because the times changed. Music genres changed, right? We don't know. They wouldn't have ended up in the same place. Absolutely. Sly just didn't die, man. He yeah. just no. stayed around. He's just, he's a surprise. Fiber, man, he really is, and those guys went out, you know. But do you think Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison would still be writing "Light My Fire"? And <laughs> no. no, no, they would not. They, They'd be meeting you in a parking lot. <laughs> that's possible, or hopefully they, you know, go through their tough times and come through and have a career like you know, like uh, David Crosby or, or uh, Joni Mitchell. Sure. You know, there are, you know, there's a lot of people that went through the ringer with rock and roll and fame, mm-hmm. came out the other side and found a way to still make music. Um, but it, it gets harder, you know, and, and times change. And, uh, you know, I, I know there's there's some sly music out there. I know it. I know that there's some hidden gems probably locked in, you know, the mobile home or safe deposit box or who are at some pawn shop, you know, in, in LA, just like some, some gem recordings that he did uh, floating around. So hopefully that will resurface at some point. Well, I hope that, I hope that what you're doing and then what I'm doing by doing this and by talking to people, I hope what we're doing is helping people understand that one of the true, true pioneers of music, honestly, uh, he was a absolute pioneer, an amazing influence on people like Stevie Wonder, on Prince, generations of musicians. He was an amazing influence on. I hope that we keep his name alive, right? And then we let people know. And then maybe someday, right, he will get the appreciation that he so rightfully deserves, um, whether he appears or not, right, to, to take that appreciation. But maybe the industry will appreciate him. Yeah, no, I hope so. Uh, you know, I, I think that. Time will tell. You know, he's, he's got a great track called Time. And time needs another minute, at least. Okay. So thank you. Thank you, Michael. I want to, whenever yes. your, your movie's you, out there. You guys can follow me. Uh, reach out to me. I'm at uh, onthesly-movie.com. Um I'm on Instagram, on the Sly Movie. Uh, feel free to reach out to me if you're interested in checking out the flick. Um, and I'll keep you posted on any screenings that come up. And, uh, you know, and hopefully, you know, some distributor will, you know, get there, you know, get it, get with it and uh, pull the trigger on this thing. Yeah, um, totally. And I mean, honestly, it, it reminds me of Pumping Iron where someone could have said, ah, that's just a building about bodybuilders. Well, no, dude, it's actually a good story. It's an amazing, it's an amazing story with great characters. Right. It's it's Heart of Darkness. It's Moby Dick. Right. It's it, it really is. My stuff. You know, it's. And it's, and it's a fan, you know, you can make it if you try. It's got a great, great uh, edict, you know, that I think is running through the film. It's just like, if you want to do something, if you believe in it enough, whether you're writing, writing music, making a film, writing a book, you know, anything artistic or, or business, even whatever, 
if you push, you're persistent, you can not meet Sly Stone. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Rubenstone, thank you so much. Good luck with your acting and uh, your voiceovers. And let's uh, let's get this movie out there. All right, thank you. Hey, if you like what you hear, like and subscribe. It really means a lot, and we would love to have you coming back every week. Thank you. A pocket for fun, ha, ha, when you know that you never know two. Number one, gonna be number one. I'll be good, I wish I could. I